0: Hello my fellow Extraordinary Americans, my name is Cosmos Dhar and this is Extraordinary America. What is Extraordinary America? Well, you see, America has always been about freedom, opportunity, and the pursuit of happiness. However, most Americans are not free when it comes to the financial front. Most Americans are suffering from financial slavery due to loss of jobs, stagnant wages, inflation, and debt. Wealth and income inequality is the norm now, and the middle class has all but disappeared. So Extraordinary America is about the abolition of financial slavery. It is about the financial freedom of the 99%. It is about the nation of immigrants and the descendant of immigrants restoring the extraordinary within themselves and setting themselves free. The path to financial freedom is through financialist education. It is to becoming entrepreneurs and investors on the light side. In this podcast, I interview fellow Americans who fought against the odds. Many of them came from humble beginnings to see how they did it. It is my hope through these interviews that the extraordinary within you shall awaken and that you will abolish financial slavery from your life and realize the American dream. Once again, welcome to Extraordinary America. Hello, my fellow Extraordinary Americans. I'm Cosmos Dar and this is Extraordinary America. Today for our show we have our guest Mr. Dan Vega. Dan is a very successful entrepreneur, investor, business coach, talk show host, and uh, speaker. He has coached everyone from celebrities to some of the topmost companies found in Forbes magazine. He also specializes in helping companies maximize profits while also uh, reducing their costs and their overhead. He is recognized today in the nation as one of the topmost speakers out there. Uh, Dan and his uh, clients have been featured in TV uh, appearances such as Ellen, AC360, Fox News, ABC, The Boston Globe, Yahoo, NBC, and Good Morning America. Hey, Dan, how, how's it going? I'm doing well, my friend. How about yourself? Doing good. Thank you for uh, coming and uh, attending this uh, this show. Uh, oh, my pleasure. Will... Yeah, so Dan, uh, we, I, I know that you are... You are an entrepreneur, investor, business coach, and uh, a speaker, right? So can you tell me a little bit more about yourself, the your ba- background, and how you got started?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in the Los Angeles area, and um, uh, my parents uh, were amazing people, but never really had a lot of financial success. My mother was a school teacher's aide. My father was a salesman of many different things. And, uh, you know, we, we made ends meet, but it was certainly that environment of, of, uh, scarcity and survive, not thrive. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, which bills are we going to pay? Which ones are we going to push? Um, of course, like any young person, I was tried the early entrepreneur stuff, mowing yards and doing this and doing that, but, but, um, after I, I was a terrible student in school, I didn't really apply myself and, uh, after high school, I uh, went, and visited a family friend and he was a very successful guy. He was sixth grade educated, grew up in the bayous of Louisiana, but he was a self-made millionaire and very savvy business guy. And I asked him a little bit of advice. And so I wound up starting my first biz like legal entity uh, <laughs> when I was 18 and a half. And uh, you know, from there I really never looked back. So that was kind of the beginning of things.
0: Well, that's pretty cool. Um, So wait, how long have you been uh, doing this for?
1: Well, um, so I'm turning 52, and, uh, and so I started at 18 and a half, so I don't know what that is, 30 years-ish? 33, 34, yeah. That's a pretty long time. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like 50, but I think it's around 30 years. <laughs> I see. Um,
0: so when it comes to like when it comes to your career, like what is your overall overall goal and vision when you ha- uh, when it comes to like what do you, what are you doing?
1: You know, I can tell you what it is now, but it's it's really changed over the years, right? So when you're young and you're in a bad situation, it's about making money. I mean, we're not, I'm not saying that that's the only focus. We want to make money ethically and responsibly without you know hurting others. But certainly, it's a big drive when you're young. You don't have enough food. You're in a bad situation. We totally the whole it's emergency, right? It's like I got to get out of the situation, and becomes somewhat about money. Um, after you kind of have a little bit of success, what fueled me every day and got me out of bed was, you know, motivation, right? And so sometimes you have a positive motivating factor. Sometimes you have a negative motivating factor for me, I had a lot of naysayers in my old neighborhood saying, come on, man, who are you trying to be? You're not this guy. And Okay, Mr. Tony Robbins, who are you trying to do? And I had a lot of people I say I would never amount to anything. So that's kind of the fuel that got me out of bed every morning was to prove the naysayers wrong. And man, I'm going to show you, I'm going to pull up in your driveway and Lambo. Like it was all about proving them wrong. And I did go through a weird phase when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, where I bought all the stuff in the houses and the, really, because I guess I was insecure and I still needed that validation. But after you have more success, after that time goes on, you realize that none of that stuff really makes you feel like you thought it was going to, you're not fulfilled. So then it becomes more about impact. And that's why I work now. You know, to be honest with you, Cosmos, I don't, I've been very fortunate over my life. So I, I don't have really a, an objective to try to make any more money. Um, I'm not trying to gain more personal influence at this point. But uh, the reason I still get up and go to work every day is, you know, I, I want to make a, 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 an impact and help affect as many people as possible with positive change, you know. So as grandiose as that may seem, that's what I really dig is, you know, I don't want to necessarily give a hand out, but a hand up. I think everybody deserves a shot. And there were some really, really great people that took an interest in me when I was young and, and gave me a shot, and mentored me. And so I always remember that. I try to reciprocate and also keep that in mind as well.
0: No, I believe in that, too. Like, that is what this show is about, you know. So, so, um, so Dan, what is the biggest lesson you learned from your work over the years?
1: Man, biggest lesson. So there's been a lot of lessons. I've had a lot of knockdown, drag outs, and, and failures like any entrepreneur. But um, I guess the biggest lesson that I've walked away with is that you have to keep your vision and your strategy set. Um, so what I mean by that is most people at one time or another in their life, they have a great vision. right? They see this big thing of what they can do to impact people. Whether it be nationwide or globally, they, they have this, uh, they see what color it is, how big it is. They have this great vision. And then they'll create a strategy to accomplish the vision. And they'll set out to accomplish the vision with a strategy. And it's naive to think that your original strategy that you launch is going to facilitate the vision. You have to know going in, you're not going to do it. It's not going to work. Because you're in a classroom, so to speak, figuring out a formula of how to accomplish this thing that you kind of dreamt up, right? So you do the best you can. You put together something that makes common sense, you roll it out and it's gonna go about four feet and to the right fall over and the wheels come off, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to put back the car, so to speak, fix it, study the data of what worked, what didn't, relaunch. It's gonna go another six feet now over to the left, wheels fall off. And so after doing that launch of the strategy and having that, those elements of failure, a really interesting ha- thing happens is we start second guessing the vision. Instead of saying, man, my strategy needs work and it sucks and I got to refine the strategy. We don't do that. We actually are like, oh man, I thought I had a whole run with this vision. I thought I was onto something. They might launch it one more time, oh man. They start losing belief in the vision or they start scaling back the vision. Oh man, even if we hit 50% what I said, I was getting, right? And that's something that you can't do. You have to completely uh, separate your vision from your strategy. So when you have great vision, that should be fixed. Those are fixed metrics that you lock it down and you never move it. Then you come up with the best strategy you can and you launch your strategy. And you have to know going in that generally the strategy is not really gonna hit the big pager and accomplish the vision until about the sixth or seventh refinement. That's generally the average. So. I don't discourage because I know I'm going to push this car four feet and it's going to fall over on the right. The wheels are going to fall. And I'm excited about it because I want to data collect as, as fast as I can so I can push it another six feet past that and the wheels go off. I'm collecting that data and that's actually telling me how to accomplish the vision. So knowing that going in, it helps us fight discouragement of all. You never, you never mess with the vision. Once it's locked, it's fixed. But you have to keep refined so we can move, refined we so can move. Constantly adjust the strategy until it facilitates the vision. That's usually on the sixth or seventh refinement that you have that success. So I, I started a lot of companies early on that, frankly, I had a you know, one or two go that, and I just got discouraged and gave them up. And, you know, who's to say those weren't the right companies that could have been big home runs, but I never found out because I didn't stick with it because I didn't understand the importance of separating my vision and strategy. That's something that I always keep in mind now. So in my office, I might be rolling out a program on Monday. Mm-hmm. because they have a certain LMI vision we wanna accomplish. And my guys will say, you know, Dan, that's not gonna work. I go, I know, right? I'm so excited to push it out. There. Cause I don't know what, this is my best guess right now, but I need data. So when I throw that out there, I wanna see where it falls apart, where it comes so I can put it back together with the new data that I was fed and push it back out there, right? But I understand just the process of being successful is on the 6th or 7th or five. So that's something that I wish I would on years ago.
0: That's really insightful. Like, yeah. Um, So what was the biggest challenge that you had to face during your work over the years? And how did you actually overcome it?
1: Well, I've had a lot of, like any entrepreneur, you have a lot of challenges. You know, people are being honest probably most entrepreneurs fail as much as they succeed or potentially even fail more than they succeed. So we take a lot more shots, I guess, than most people. Um, and, uh, cause it only takes a couple of home runs to get you where you are. Right. I, I think one of the hardest things, as you know, I did some work in the media. I, at one time, I had a talk show on ABC after Jimmy Kimmel and, um, I had never been exposed like that. When you're exposed to the public eye, you're under a lot of scrutiny. And I was also in the seminar business at the same time, you know, doing a lot of seminars. And, um, there was a guy on my team that I was out of the country on a tour, uh, in, in Africa and for several weeks. And one guy on my team did a spinoff and took half my crew and they went and started their own company while I was gone. What? And of course I felt betrayed. Um, especially when it's somebody that you've given so much to, I mean, this is out of anybody I've given them so much value, you know, and they no, totally, and yeah. And you feel betrayed. And the first time it happens to you, it really cuts to the bone. Right. And, um, and then they eventually fell apart and the guy came back to the well and tried to extort me. And, uh, what? literally it was like sliding a piece of paper over, put this much money in an account within this much time where we're going to run.
0: That is crazy.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so I didn't comply. I called my attorneys and it turned into this big mess. And this guy said a bunch of really un- unkind things on the internet about me which weren't true at all, but people don't know that. Right. So I've never in- in- endured a storm like that. And, um, I remember talking to Tony Robbins about it at one point. And I was just so distraught cause this is the first time I'm dealing with this and he's like, dude, how many, how many haters do you have? And I'm like one. Maybe it's you. It's so bad. He just laughs. He's like, I have millions of people, millions of haters. And frankly, it doesn't bother me. I don't lose any sleep at all. And I remember when he told me that I thought he was lying. I'm like, that's not true. There's no way you can't feel that something. But over the years, what I learned is one thing that all entrepreneurs have in common when they start is they're in obscurity. Nobody knows who the heck you are, right? We're all start off in obscurity. The next phase after obscurity is resistance. And then the very next phase, right, most people give up in resistance, right? Most people quit five minutes before the miracle happens. But right after resistance is acceptance, and then admiration. Mm -hmm. And maybe some don't make it to admiration, but I gotta tell you, you can make nine figures a year in acceptance. Acceptance is pretty nice. And um, so it's just part of the process. I don't know any people that are wildly successful. If they don't have some people don't like what they do, and you you can say haters, if you have none, then you're probably not big enough. You're not uh, affecting enough people and probably not making as large of an impact as it could be. So, first time that happened to me, I was really taken back and definitely lost sleep. But now I I don't get a lot of them. If you're in the public eye, you get a few. And I actually don't think about it at all. It doesn't affect me at all. So now I, Tony, and he was probably telling the truth, but at the time, I thought it was lying. I just thought, how could this not bother somebody? But it's just part of the uh, part of the dog and pony show. Appreciate.
0: Sure. No, yeah, totally. Um, so, so, Dan, uh, they say that success is a state of mind, and it's also a process and not an event. However, a lot of successful people can uh, pinpoint a certain day or time where a certain mental shift happened, and from that point moment on, they started to succeed. What is that moment for you?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I I I think to be successful, it takes a lot of determination, a lot of hard work. Um, you have to come somewhat comfortable with discomfort. Um, there's a lot of attributes we need to be successful. However, it ultimately is a state of mind. We all deal with challenges. Even people that don't have a lot of financial success still deal with challenges. Still have a great work ethic. Still have a good right. So it is a, a switch that flips. Um, and, uh, I remember Tony actually saying one time that he was doing these seminars and he was kind of like having a little bit of success with the seminars and people were just losing their minds. Tony Robbins, he was living in a one bedroom apartment, washing dishes in his bathtub, and he had imposter syndrome. He felt like he was living a lie because he's, he dabbled in this world. It was what he wanted, but then he went back home to reality. And it messes with your head a little bit, right? And then he had this moment. Uh, he started running down the beach just crying and had the moment. So it does happen, I think, in one day. For me, I actually remember it was a Tuesday. Um, I was running an office with about 20 people, and I generated money, but I wasn't really, I didn't have the right training at the time. I was I was in my late twenties. I would I could generate, let's say, a million a year. But I didn't have my company structured properly where it was real profitable, and I had to I actually took an off-the- books job down the road with Chevrolet to teach sales and whatever and my basically I had to kind of posed like I was on vacation. Kids, the, the people following me thought I was so successful. Meanwhile, I'm down the street taking a uh, off- the books job, right? And I remember I got hired, and I'm in this room, and they gave me all their training materials of what they're doing so I could figure out how to my approach i'm reading this book and it has a quote by a guy named charles b rock and um it wasn't that the quote was so profound but it just got me thinking along this certain line where i just sat there for probably an hour just pondering and just kind of mulling over things i started getting really angry i started getting mad i was so angry and I wasn't mad at Chevrolet or my office. I was mad at myself because I knew I had to do this because I wasn't, I didn't have the right education. I was, I didn't do the work. I didn't, you know, I wasn't living in my full potential. And eventually as I kept sitting there just kind of brewing, that anger kind of changed some enthusiasm. I started thinking of all the things I needed to change and all the things I was going to do as soon as I got back. And, uh, I actually wind up leaving that little temporary gig, going back to my office and taking the reins. and things. but starting today, this guy, Danny Vega, he's dead to me. He's like, starting tomorrow, I'm going to be Dan. I'm going to be Dan, the man you're going to see. And I showed up different and I showed up really invested and I showed up very present and I had a different level of authority. And I even, even after a few weeks, my physically metamorphosis, I actually looked different. I was just, I was trying to become the guy that I always thought I could be, and I started living the best version of, of myself, Michael Mitchell. But it certainly does happen in an instant. I guess that's it. That was in—I uh, don't remember the month, but it was in the summer of uh, 1997 or 98, 97 maybe.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty inspirational actually. Um, so Dan. Uh, what is the one thing you wish you had known uh, when you began your career, and what advice would you give somebody that wants to pursue your field and is just starting off?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, um, there's a lot of different things. Um, I guess I'll, I'll if I have to pick one, you know, most middle class uh, people in the middle class, uh, small business owners, let's say, or entrepreneurs. Their whole mindset is consumed with increasing revenue. We need more leads, more sales, more money, more revenue. We need more capital, more right That's what we're consumed with and I gotta tell you to create generational wealth, if that's a goal, um, generational wealth has very little to do. becoming wealthy has very little to do with increasing your revenue um I mean. Not even ten percent. I mean, you have to have a good work ethic. My work ethic's not better than probably, you know, it's average as, as most people. I, I, think you're being, I
0: think you're being humble over there, but
1: well, I mean, I don't kill my. I don't believe in the ten-hour, twelve-hour days. I'm not the grinder that you know. There's a lot of guys out there that they believe you have to gr- embrace the grind and go sixty hours a week, or you're a wuss. You know, I've just never had to do. That. I don't think if you have the right know-how, you have to do that, but. um Creating wealth has very little to do with increasing revenue. It's all about taking on strategic debt and the accumulation of assets. And that's a discipline thing. It's not a money thing. So there's a lot of people that have never made more than a minimum wage, right? And they're very, very wealthy It's because it has to do with, uh, with taking less strategic debt. If you think about the way our government is structured, we don't pay tax on we pay tax on revenue, but we don't pay tax on debt. So they're telling you, like, the key is debt, right? So I have a friend of mine that was homeless. I actually get a 480 FICO score bankruptcy. And he made this decision. He had that moment that we talked about. And in five and a half years, he was number 25 on the Forbes list, which is in the world. Right, And it was worth several billion dollars. And the way he did it was taking less strategic debt because people have an aversion to debt. They hate it. They want to push it away. They'll legally assign it to it if you're willing to take it. And if you really understand how debt works, you can use debt to get out of debt and create wealth. I'm not, I'm not talking metaphorically; I'm talking literally. If you understand how debt works. You can use debt to get out of debt and create wealth. So let's say somebody, I'm doing a seminar, let's say, and somebody says, man, I got like 50 grand worth of debt. I'm so stressed out about it. I want to get out. Of it. okay. And the guy next to him says, man, I got more than that. I got 100000 worth of debt. Next guy says, I got 200000 worth of debt. What I'm saying is, is the first person could go say, would you legally give me your debts? And I'd like to pay them for you. And would you give me your debts and your debts? And go, and believe me, they'll get to it to you because they hate them, right? And that strategy would make that person very, very wealthy.
0: See, that's really interesting because most people like have an aversion to debt, but this is a very interesting perspective from your end.
1: Well, I mean, most six-figure people, what do they do? They pay off all their debt, their negative debts. And then their income drops like a stone because the number one factor that controls your income is how much you need to make, right? So not all debt is bad. There's strategic debt out there. It's, uh, and it's really the only way to create wealth. So you can even Google like Walmart millionaires. There's thousands of people that have worked for Walmart, never made more than a Walmart wage. And they're very, very wealthy. It's not about increasing revenue, It's about taking on strategic debts and then of assets. And you don't need capital to do that. You need a strategy. And uh, that's something I wish I would have known. And that's the advice that I can uh, Google, you know, how to, how debt really works, or how to use debt to create wealth, you'll find a ton of videos that will show you the strategy. Pattern.
0: This is very interesting. I I do hope my audience uh, like takes a look into this. So, yeah. So, Dan, uh, they say that America is the land of the free and the place where dreams are made. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? And if so, why?
1: I mostly agree with the statement. You know, for sure, two decades ago. You know, I feel very fortunate to live in the United States. And, um, you know, I have a friend I was just sending money to earlier today in Uganda. And when you look, it's a different planet. You know, they wake up every morning over there saying, My whole goal today is try not to die. There's so many other elements they have to deal with that we don't. So I feel very fortunate for that, obviously. And I think 20 years ago, even 10, really, proximity was a big, big factor because how do we come to America? How do we, you know, think about Island, right? All these people coming over, how do we get to America so we can have this opportunity? Um, and again, I feel very, very fortunate. However, with that being said, in today's world, we live in a digital age. You can live in India or Mexico or any country you want, and work anywhere you want. Like I'm living currently in Florida. I don't do any business in Florida. I live, my business is national or global and I just like to live here, right? Um, so I think it's less of a factor. I think people, successful people, will always find a way. So, whether we're living in Europe or US or you know, some country in Africa or Asia, it doesn't matter as much because there's a lot of opportunities that you can do remotely to create wealth. But, uh, I certainly think that, um, we might have a, a slight okay. Um,
0: so Dan when it comes to americans living what do you think is like the biggest hurdle that americans face when it comes to living the american dream and how would they overcome it
1: biggest hurdle um i think that a lot of uh people uh, again the mindset of americans is more more we need more of this more sales more leads more people coming to the door more cash and you know, there, that's, not an, that's not an agreement with the law of abundance, right? So the law of abundance is, is that when you can handle what you have, more will be given. And so let me give you an illustration. Um, and I learned this from a really good buddy of mine, T. Harvick. Uh, suppose you have a little child, say two, three years old. You take a price and uh, they, uh, you know, they you give them the, the one scoop you know, one scoop vanilla or one scoop chocolate. They're, you know, they're small, they have it with two hands. And when you're leaving, as they open the door, something kind of happens, the door hits somewhere, whatever, and the, the thing topples over on the floor. They just freak out. They're screaming, Wah! crying, it's a bad deal, right? Mm-hmm. And you, you, you'll do anything to get your kid that's got crying in public. There's people staring, you'll just about agree to anything. Just stop that in the moment, right? And you're saying, it's okay, we'll get you another one, don't worry about it, it's okay, it's okay. And then while the child is calming down, they look up and there's a poster with the triple scoop chocolate brownie monster whatever specialty. And she says, I want that, right? (laughs)
0: Yeah. At
1: that point in time, you'll probably give them anything just to shut them up and get them out of the store. But why would we set them up for failure? They just proved they can't handle one scoop, we're gonna load them up with three scoops, right? And so, It's the same thing with the ice cream store owner. You know, they have bins of frozen ice creams all over the place that are broken down and melting and they're losing product. But what are they saying? We need more customers. We need more people walking through the door. We need this. We need that, right? And that's the wrong place to look. So when you can handle what you already have efficiently, when you can take care of the business you do have, satisfy the clients you do have, and clean up the mess all over the floor, then more will be provided. Right? So I think that, especially Americans, we're in that mindset of just more, but sometimes less is the answer.
0: That's deeply insightful. Yeah, it's. Uh, I actually agree with that. Um, so, what are your what are your thoughts around the inflation right now that's happening in the country?
1: I don't like it. <laughs> no, I love debt. Oh man, I'll take that all day long. I don't like inflation. I think as I mean obviously we're in hyperinflation right now and there's many factors that kind of put us there so I'll say two things regarding it. number one in, in when you're in it, living in a time where there's hyperinflation superinflation you don't want to have a ton of cash in the bank because the inflation is just eating the money right kind of like if I buried all my money underground the elements are going to get to some of it. It's screen right so you can't have a ton of cash in the bank you want to have four to six months worth of bills or whatever for emergencies. But honestly, if you sit on a lot of cash in the bank, it's not good because the tide's rising with inflation. So what you want to do is pull your money out of the bank and invest it into assets, tangible assets, Mm -hmm. right? Because those tangible assets will ride the wave of inflation. They'll actually increase and gain value. And then when this period of hyperinflation is over, which it will be, then you pull back out. And so, and you have, you have equity, right? you have, you have an increased value of those assets. So looking to put uh, money into places where you can get good assets, that's the key to, to ride this wave and it'll actually help you work in your favor. Um, but the other side that I want to mention is, you know, a successful person, I have a lot of friends that have a lot of money, but. They're on the golf course and they're like, dude, inflation, this guy's white house and it should be this guy, COVID, this is going on, that's going on. They're like stressing out all the time. I don't stress out about any of those things because honestly, I can't change those things and I don't want to live in the past, certainly previous mistakes. I don't want to live future based all the time. What if, what if, what if? I just have my focus on present, and not just being, you know, the brightest future I could have is being present right now, right? Taking great actions right now and then the reaction will be fitting to the action. That's gonna pave me a really bright future. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm not just present, I present a lot of things that I can affect. I'm looking at the news and the guy in the White House or this or that or COVID or this, I can't control any of that crap. I mean, I like to be informed, but I can't control it, I can't change. So, I focus on the things that I can change. I focus on the people that I can impact. And I always tell people in my office, look, all those external factors don't affect me much. And they're just like, why? It should. I'm like, well, I mean, I'm happy. I, I wake up happy. I go to bed happy. Maybe I'm doing something right. So, I think just letting go a little bit of those external factors and focusing on what is in your control be a lot better recipe, not only for success, but for having a happy life.
0: No, totally. Yeah. So, so Dan, the, uh, over the past few years in America, there's been a lot of deterioration in the financial sector. And not just that, like also in the family unit and uh, just uh, like in the government as well. Do you think that we should be optimistic about the future? And if so, why? And like, where is America headed?
1: You know, I, I think that, again, just kind of what we were speaking on. Um, I'm optimistic about the future. And I'm just, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I don't i don't care. It's not really one of my concerns. Uh, but I personally, I'm not going to push my beliefs on anybody. but I personally believe that no matter who you get in the White House or whatever, I don't think man is capable of eradicating hunger. Russell. 75% of people in the world don't have enough food or water, right? I don't think man is capable at this point to eradicate poverty those are massive issues right but i think we can contribute to do our part and i think we can make it better and um you know i think that uh there is some things that we can focus on to help others and you know of course make an impact but i think that um you know right now we just got to do the best we can i think that there, we have a bright future and i will say that successful people Always figure out a way. You know, I have friends in California. Now they're talking about an exit tax. and I'm getting killed. on I I get it. Move, whatever. But successful people always find a way to thrive. And so I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm not to say we'll have pivots coming up around and have to, you know, turn on a dime. Somebody told me one time being an entrepreneur is like jumping out of an airplane and assembling the parachute on the way down. And it can feel that way sometimes. I'm very optimistic about where things are headed, despite the turmoil and kind of nutty stuff that we're watching.
0: So that's like the spirit we all need, you know, to just be optimistic. So, yeah. So Dan, uh, I looked at you. Uh, I looked at this thing called Tuesdays with Dan. This uh, this work that you did. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that and like what prompted you to do it?
1: Yeah, sure. I, you know, I never had any aspirations to get into television. I, uh, you know, I was doing seminars full time. So we were pretty organized. We had, um, a, our own lineup and we were doing two cities a week, 45 weeks a year. It was really a machine. And, um, I was doing a seminar in Orange County, California. And this guy was like, Oh my God, man, you need to be on TV. This and that. I work for network and In LA, you're not really, you hear that all the time. Like I'm a producer, I work for a network and you don't know if it's real. This guy actually did work for the networks. He worked for NBC at the time. And, you know, I took a meeting and they wanted to do like a late night talk show kind of deal. And it was was an interesting proposition. I think it would have been a lot of fun. But me and my wife had found out that, you know, we were pregnant. And we didn't want to live in LA anymore just to raise a kid we want we had our sites move and that deal would have kind of kept me there, you know, five days a week. And so it was a great opportunity and I was very appreciative, but it didn't fit with my family plan and I got to follow my prayer. Right. Um, but it did plant a seed where from that point forward, every great entrepreneur I met or celebrity or whatever, I'm like, Dang, that would have been a great interview. Right. I kind of, so later, uh, ABC offered me a deal. They said, look, we can't start you national, um, right now. Cause I was insistent on owning my own intellectual property. So I didn't want to be a late night talk show host, it was just salaried. And they told me who to interview, when to interview, what to say. Like I wanted the IP, I'm an entrepreneur. And they said, okay, we'll do it, but you're going to have to invest and build your own studio. We filmed it in front of a live audience of about 200 people. And, uh, we'll air you on Tuesday nights after Jimmy Tittle. But um, we can't guarantee national. We'll start you in three or four states. And if the rating's good enough, we'll expand it national. So that's what we did. And, um, you know, uh, it was a great experience. Um, since I had great contacts, I was able to kind of stack the deck and get good guests right away and get good ratings. So I did the show for six seasons. And um, it was a great season in my life. Eventually, I, you know, went on to other things. I can, you know, I had to prioritize my time, but then I, I hung in as long as I wanted what I wanted to do. It was a fantastic uh, experience. We did grow up to about 40 or 50 million homes. Nice. So, so great.
0: So Dan, is there uh, any work that you're doing right now that you'd like us to get a glimpse into?
1: That's a good question. So, um, You know, it's not fully there yet, but I've created this uh, credo. I believe I mentioned earlier. um, There's some things I just don't think man can take on. You know, eradicate poverty, eradicate hunger. Those are massive challenges. I think that's for a higher source. However, there's some things we can take care of, and there's some things that we really do need to get involved with. Uh, For instance, I feel like a lot of our leaders are letting us down. I'm not going to say which sectors, but whether you want to translate that into our politicians or religious leaders or business leaders, especially I think they're they're letting us down in many ways. I think it's a free for all right now in big business and I'm in that field and it's pretty much, there's no gray areas, right? If I could talk you into it, shame on you to let talk you into it. You should have vetted better. Like it's just a crazy. Um, and sometimes we'll praise these companies for being very, they're they're not uh, breaking the law will praise them as being very ethical companies. And it's such a minimal standard of like, they're not breaking the laws of the right. Just because something is, you know, not illegal, it doesn't make it ethical. So some of the companies that I'm involved with, we live by a credo, it's 10 create uh, values. And that's what we live by. And it's, uh, you gotta toe the line or you're asked to leave. And one of the new projects I'm working on Uh, through different proclamations of different cities is to find 10,000 companies, big or small, 10,000 companies that will sign a petition to um, adopt this credo in their company to use it as the framework for their company. They don't have to pay anything. um, They don't have to do a lot different, but they're basically saying, we will live by these values and principles, and we'll use it as the bones for for our business as well. We're and they have a little seal, kind of like a good housekeeping seal that shows that these are people doing it right or that we want to promote their name and put them out there. So we're just starting out. I'm very excited. I think that something is attainable. That reform business is uh, certainly needed. And I think we can make a big dent in that. This is actually pretty amazing. Yeah, hopefully put companies on a trajectory for long-term sustain, you know, sustainable behavioral change, as grandiose as that that is.
0: No, it's like, it's, it's, it's really amazing. Like, I, I definitely want to, uh, yeah, we definitely want to know more about it. You know, so it's pretty good. Um, how So Dan, how can our audience connect with you and know more, uh, and like, Polly, like, know more of like what you're doing?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I, um, hmm, I don't do a lot of social media, to be honest with you, because, I think when a lot of people think about influence, they think about social influence, right? And uh, that's just never had to be part of my plan. So I purposely try not to do a lot of posting. I like a little anonymity and I like to do success and have success, but kind of be a little under the radar these days. Um, you know, if you think about what's more influence, having, being on the front lines with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that have contact to you that are, DMing you, or have the ear of 200 powerful people, right? That you have influence of, when there's more powerful, right? I know social is not really my part. I do check LinkedIn, so if you hit me up on LinkedIn, um, or you can go to uh, uh, danvegabusiness.com dot com and it'll have a I'm sure email that you can get a hold of me, uh, or well,
0: okay. Well, Dan, uh, thank you so much for being part of the show. We really appreciate it, and uh, we would definitely want to have you back over here in the in the future. I mean,
1: it's my pleasure. Be yeah,
0: fun. thank you so much. And uh, well, well, my fellow extraordinary Americans, remember that there's always an extraordinary person within each one of us, and it's our job to empower them and unleash them. Uh, bye for now. Until next time. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for watching extraordinary America. If you like what you see, please do subscribe to our podcast and share it with others. Remember that the best investment that you can make in your lifetime is in your own financial education, for it is knowledge that truly sets you free. Also remember that uh, your purchasing power is being diluted through inflation. And then the practical thing to do is to protect the loss of your purchasing power by investing in precious metals or the right cryptocurrencies. Also, never forget that you are an extraordinary American. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye for now.